The Ensemble Advice South Africa podcast is intended for professional financial advisors. All discussion is limited to publicly available information and should not be interpreted as legal, professional or financial advice. Hi, I'm Louis van der Merwe, Certified Financial Planner. Join me every week where I get to have discussions with global leaders in the financial planning space to help you serve your clients better and run a more efficient financial planning practice. This is the Ensemble Advice South Africa podcast. Portfolio Metrics is thrilled to bring you this podcast in support of our common passion for people and the evolution of wealth management. Our global business links precision investment management to expert financial advice through partnerships and technology. Portfolio Metrics is an authorized financial services provider. Comspace is a revenue management solution developed specifically for independent financial advisors. It is a web-based application that tracks, allocates, and manages advisor revenue. The system seamlessly reads commission statements from financial institutions and can address any permutation of commission splits. Comspace provides mind-blowing, out-the-box revenue business intelligence and analytics, along with super-flexible reporting to effectively manage and grow your business. Welcome to another episode of Ensemble Advice South Africa. Today, I have the privilege to have with me Mark Hederman. Mark is the CEO and a certified financial planner at Hederman Financial Solutions, all the way from Dublin in Ireland. Mark, thanks so much for being here today. Louis, an absolute privilege and a pleasure to join you. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you here, man. We first connected in Cape Town at the Portfolio Metrics Lead Symposium, which is wonderful to have people from across the board, like you just said, we're 12 hours away, but we think in the same way. Before we get to talk a little bit about the clients and the things that you do for them, I want to know a bit more about Hederman Financial Solutions. It's a multi-generational firm. And when I look at your team page, I, I see quite a few people with the same surname. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about uh, about how it is working with your family, assuming that uh, some of them might listen to this as well. Yeah, exactly. And, and and whether or not does it actually work working with your family. But yeah, we're, we're, we're very lucky um, uh, to have joined a practice that my my, my parents had, had, had spent a lot of time building and uh, kind of crafting over years. And you know, I, I look back, my my dad joined the Canada Life Assurance Company here in Ireland in 1982. And at the time, as he said, he was he did a two-week sales training course, was handed a rate book and was sent out into the vast wilderness of Dublin to go and write policies, endowment policies and personal pension plans and clients. And as he said himself, <clears throat> he did that from a relatively successful base for, right up until the early 2000s. And a, a really interesting thing is it began to have a very detrimental impact on his health. And as he said himself, the stress that came with this concept of um, feeding upon what you kill each year, if you excuse the expression, or having to be constantly driven by targets and going out without there being, um, you know, an, an underlying uh, strategy around, well, we want to help the clients here, but obviously we have a big firm in the background dictating that we need to write all these cases every year. And, you know, is the tail starting to wag the dog? So they made the decision, but on my mum, sorry, to, to add to that, she joined him in Canada Life to assist him from an administration standpoint because things had just run away with themselves. And I suppose the market in Ireland as well was evolving with compliance issues and things that just didn't exist. 
So in 2007, they established the firm Hederman Financial Solutions. And one of the founding principles, I suppose, and, 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 and Hederman as a surname in Ireland, it might be probably, it might be more fit in South Africa than it would be in Ireland, which is, you know, you're a Byrne, you're a Murphy, you're an O'Reilly. Hederman is quite a unique uh, surname. And they're one of the rationales why that was put there, because you, you know, was was primarily to say, look, we're we, we feel strong enough in our service proposition, and we feel strong enough in the sense that we believe in building proper trust and proper relationship with our clients that we're going to put our name over the, on the logo. And um, obviously, if something goes belly up or goes wrong with a name like Hederman in Ireland, you're not going to get very far. So the whole idea is we were constantly driven by you know, uh, empathy, total empathy for clients and total trust and relationship. And I was very fortunate to join them in the business in 2011, having kind of traveled the world a little bit and sampled a number of different professions in, in, in various jurisdictions in, in France and in, in Australia. And I came back to an environment in Ireland where most people were exiting. So uh, they were emigrating to America or to Australia or New Zealand or Canada at a time when we, we were effectively an economic basket case. And I joined as an apprentice, having uh, studied a, a business and languages degree in college here. I, I joined as an apprentice. And the interesting thing at the time in 2011 was they said, look, we, we're not really in a position to pay you a salary. And in order for, for you to be onboarded, we're going to have to take a cut out of our own salary to pay you. So it was it, it was a position whereby it wasn't certainly wasn't taken lightly by any of us. And I think we were very fortunate as a family unit whereby we, we had the ability to sit down and kind of talk about what direction travel we wanted the business to go in. And we were very lucky. Um, my dad was one of the first uh, individuals in Ireland, I think roughly around 2008, 2009, to undertake the, the certified financial planning course. He was involved in bringing it in. And the interesting thing in Ireland was that it's actually linked to a level nine master's degree. So you, you, you also graduate as a what's called a graduate diploma in financial planning. So you, you not only hold a certified financial planning um, qualification, but you also are, you have an MSc then as well, which was enormous. So he was one of the, the first people to, to qualify. And I followed suit then, roughly speaking, in around 2016. And the interesting thing we spoke about at the time was I actually felt having done the CFP, I was in quite a bad place because I felt we were primarily on, we were a reactionary firm. So we didn't really have a, a major service proposition in place. It was kind of like our hope was we've so many clients here. Hopefully, you know, we will contact them, but our hope is they're not going to contact us. And we just don't have the resources available. And, and, and as I said, doing the CFP course was almost like being trained to drive a Formula One car, but then going back to driving the, the Fiat 500. And we sat down at that point, roughly speaking, in 2016 and decided that we were going to try and chart a new journey for ourselves for the for the firm and try and future proof effectively exactly as you touched upon earlier on is can we can we can we see ourselves doing this happily for the next 25 years and we've been on that sort of journey roughly speaking since 2016 we've we've tried to implement we we followed the South African model very closely where we know the South African advisors in the late 90s decided things like commission didn't add value to clients so we transitioned away we look at things like RDR in the UK roughly speaking in 2012 where major, major changes were made. And we decided to say, well, our benchmark should be a global benchmark as opposed to just primarily what happens on the ground here in Ireland. And we were very fortunate that the team continued to grow and expand. My, my two brothers joined us in the firm. Um, they, uh, my youngest brother now, Luke, who's just turned 30, is qualified as a CFP now as well. 
Ian, the middle brother, has has just done a business degree and also his QFA or his kind of the, the qualified financial advisory exams. So, as you said, the the, the team page of of our team of ten, um, roughly speaking, we've six or so bearing the 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 surname. So we have to be kind of very careful with that as well that there isn't that groupthink where we're all around a family table on a barbecue on a Sunday dictating the world. We're very open to the concept that everybody has skin in the game and everybody's included as part of the conversation. Mark, I can only imagine how nice it is for a client to experience being serviced by a family. And I want to know, is there any of the clients that are still around from your dad's early days of selling products? Like, are they still clients that would come and say, oh, I used to deal with your dad and and this is the stories that uh, they've shared with you? Yeah, it's remarkable because we're we're actually now, I suppose it's in a really positive and also in a slightly sad way with a lot of these cases because we're now dealing with clients who are at the cusp of retirement. And a lot of them, we, we have the distinct pleasure now of, as I said, we haven't had to build this. All we have to do is nurture the relationships. And our rationale for that was once we, once we implemented the ethos of, of, of empathy, transparency and trust with clients, we couldn't go wrong. I suppose we were just a little bit more tech and digitally savvy than, than let's say my parents would have been. So we, we've continued, to, I would hope, to continue to, to grow those relationships. And the interesting thing is we now have people coming to us and saying, well, what a position, what a great position it is that I'm now in a point where I can retire and retire comfortably. And the other flip side, as I said, and sometimes in the slightly sad point is we're also sitting at kitchen tables with husbands or wives of those who've passed away and who have been on the pitch with us for those 40 years and it's amazing in a way from a relationship standpoint to be sitting there with saying, well, look, we can't replace the emotion loss, but no different than what we did for the last 30 years, we're going to stay on the pitch here to help you. And financially, you're going to be okay. So it's, it, it is, we're very lucky that we still have those relationships. And in a lot of cases, we're now dealing with the second and in some cases, third generation of those original clients. So it's almost like the planting of the seed. It takes a long time, but it's now grown into the great big oak tree and one of our difficulties around that is well how do we fundamentally manage this thing without this sort of toppling over from a resources standpoint mark the comment you made there is around you know dealing with someone whose partner or spouse might have passed on Um, i truly believe that our financial advice is really tested when someone actually passes away you can see the quality of the planning and the quality of the advice what what are the kind of guiding principles that you are giving Luke to be able to have these conversations with clients? You know, maybe someone with not the same amount of experience as you. What would you say to him to avoid maybe some of the pitfalls of, of dealing with someone when there's emotional decisions to be made, but still sound financial guidance? It's, it's so difficult because if you think about all the various training and all the logic that we go through, you need to be almost like a behavioral psychologist to put yourself in a position where, well, how do you, I, I think in, and particularly when we look at that in Ireland, death is treated in a very strange manner in Ireland, whereby um, I even look at the example I made a recently to one of the lads here was funerals in Ireland are a very, not a special kind of thing, but they they hold a lot of significance and tradition here. So what you tend to find is everybody, anybody who ever came across you will be at your funeral. You could have hundreds of people. And as, as, as we say to the lads here, look, the funeral itself is not the difficult point. The difficult point of this piece is two weeks from now when everyone has disappeared and gone back to their normal lives and we're the only ones left on the pitch. So we have to absolutely be fundamentally sound in respect of, of, of A, on trying as best we can to understand where those people are at from a mental and psychological standpoint. And the biggest thing we can do is diminish 
distresses and strains that they have. So as I said, if, if somebody's in that position, they're going to have somewhere between eight to 10 key elements that are going to cause them massive stress and worries, dealing with undertakers or dealing with hospitals or dealing with outstanding bills, whatever it has to be. Now, if we can take two of those off the pitch for them, that's a huge step in the right direction. And I think what we always have to direct as well, now as I say to the lads, there's no science to this. It's kind of more around saying, if this was the position of our own parents and one wasn't on the pitch, how would we like our mother, our father, or our siblings to be dealt with if their spouse or partner weren't there? How would we like people to deal with them? And I think if we always try and relate back to how we how we in our own uh, minds would like that done, I don't think it can go too far wrong. And we spend a lot of time talking about these softer things in the office around just, well, how do we approach these situations? And what we then try and do is, if we are in that situation where we've dealt with somebody who's had a very um, a major illness or has suffered a bereavement. We actually come back and sit down in the office and we talk through how that went. Are there bits we could do better in future around this? And it's not that we have a distinct process. These are kind of the softer touch skills that kind of more exist with you as a person rather than as a financial planner. But we're really conscious that our key role here is to ensure that those people are looked after and, and they get the right outcome. Because as as, as you know, well, Louis, um, People tend to be very, very vulnerable in those circumstances. And there are other people with ulterior motives who might tend to move in at an inopportune time to try and get the betterment for them as opposed to for, for those people who've been bereaved or, or suffer from an illness. Yeah, it's this continuous growth mindset where we could reflect and say, how do we do this even better next time? And I think you put it so nicely that, you know, this there is no exact science, right? It's, it's going yeah. there and... and if we do it the way we would want our family members to receive advice, then we also tick the big compliance box as well, I exactly. think, by default. Yet we don't see that. We see, you know, other professionals jumping on opportunities to to make a quick buck. Tell me a little bit about how the financial planner or advisor is seen in Ireland. Is it very similar to South Africa where, you know, here it's very close to for a lot of people to the secondhand car salesman, it's like, oh no, I'm going to end up with another product if, if I speak to you. Is, yeah. is that the kind of the same evolution that Ireland has gone through? Pretty much. And and I, I, I would argue we're probably even further behind where South Africa at the moment. Like I was, I was really taken aback by the, I, I know maybe we're, we're in a, we're in a bit of a bubble with the portfolio metrics piece at the lead symposium because we, we know that these are going to be the, the, what I describe as like the, the, the best of the best effectively at this, but yeah, we're we're probably lagging behind as probably we're we're still in what I describe as industry mode, and we need to make that transition to profession. And that isn't that isn't totally dictated tr- truly by way of an education piece. I I think it's kind of a more of a mindset change. And we still have a commissions environment here in Ireland, whereby um you could you're paid to transact, and that's that. And for most cases, the advice is provided by way of the larger life insurance companies and the banks. And in a lot of instances, um, unless there's a transaction to occur, the advisor doesn't really see a lot of value in the relationship. And where, where we've tried to pivot on this is to say, well, you know, yes, it's really important that we do get paid, but there are a number of methodologies on how we get paid. And that should be totally dictated by the client. And whether that's by way of commission, a fee, an AUM model, a subscription model, we're happy to have that conversation with a client. And, and, and ultimately, what we're trying to dictate is, you know, Obviously, as a firm, we want to ensure that we, we're survivable from a profitability standpoint and it makes sense for us to get up in the morning and come in. But at the same time, there's there's a difficulty in Ireland, I think, and, and you're, you're always going to be led by the fact that 
if you, if we're in a pre ordr style environment. So we had some legislatory changes here a number of years ago called CP116, where the central bank implemented changes. And a lot of people thought they were going to call commissions. And they sort of moved away from doing that. And they, they called things like tickets to rugby matches and golf events and being wine dined effectively. And it was sort of a soft push. And we, we saw there was considerable lobbying in the background from some of the, the, the advisory lobbying groups to keep commissions on the table. And you could argue both ways that there's an argument to keep them and there's an argument to, to get rid of them. And and our 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 thought process on this is it's not it's not that we feel one way or the other, but we feel if there's total transparency. So if the client knows and they've been given choice, then there shouldn't be an issue. And I think until we've we've sort of broached that hurdle, um, like the vast majority of advisors here in Ireland are going to be seen in that light. And and, and I think our concept and why we, why the the rationale of coming down to South Africa was so important and secondly secondary to to my role in head of my financial solutions i'm also a director in ireland of the financial planners of ireland group which is a membership and advocacy uh, uh group for certified financial planners and our real rationale around this is can we get better outcomes for consumers and clients like and if that's all we do by coming together and pooling ideas and sharing our experiences clients get better outcomes they tend to talk to other people and we and we all get a lift as a result. So our concept here domestically is the more we can collaborate globally, the the more ideas we can beg, borrow or steal from you guys in South Africa, from our colleagues in America, from Canada, from New Zealand, Australia, the better outcomes fundamentally our clients will get here. And it just gives us the approach whereby we then try and lift this and we're seen more in the view as a profession rather than an industry. And then I, I even think that from a personal standpoint, I think it makes your job a lot easier when you get up in the morning because you can fundamentally come in and say, we're here to add good. We're here to add value for our clients. And I mean, that alone should speak volumes relative. Well, are we well remunerated? Yes. But are we adding considerable value in their lives first and foremost? And I think that's the primary piece. And it's something we're trying to drive very hard here in Ireland. And as I said, one of the difficulties we tend to have is we are a very small jurisdiction. We have a population of 5 billion people. And what you tend to find is the waterline is quite low. And, and as a result, our argument is all we have to be here is a little bit better than fair to be excellent. But that's probably maybe not a good impression of where we stand then as a whole, as, as a profession. So I, I think by continuing to share ideas and, and to get a read and a learn from our, our from our South African colleagues and from our colleagues overseas is the only way we're going to be able to, all of us as a global profession, to, to drive this forward. And exactly as you said lift that waterline because uh, uh, interesting conversations in Cape Town with, with you and your colleagues is, albeit um, we're all very well educated, we're all trying to do our best, we're still seen in that category, which is, you know, doesn't make you feel very good when you get up in the morning. I can relate with so many things that you've said. And in South Africa, we've had a similar experience with um, limiting conflict of interest. And essentially, the regulator has said, you cannot receive an incentive more than the equivalent of basically 20 euros. <laughs> so gone yeah. are the overseas trips and the skiing trips, yeah. uh, you know, which is the reason a lot of people join this uh, this profession. Of course. <laughs> Hope, hopefully for the benefit of clients, right? Where yeah. They can see that, you know, like you said, they have options of the remuneration. Is there anything that have maybe stood out or surprised you when giving a client a choice of how they can remunerate versus the standard, you know, commission model? Yeah, I think it's remarkable. We had a chat with a client quite recently about this and we were were very open and upfront in terms of chatting to our clients because they're stakeholders. So effectively, we look at them as being shareholders in our business. And as a result, like their dividend effectively from that outcome is that we get better 
Like I, I use an analogy in the office, we need to get better here every week, but, but, but by 1%. There is no 10% gains here because, you know, w- we would prefer to be slow and steady. And one of the remarkable things is I think there was a massive appreciation for clients because then they're part of the team. It's now a collaborative effort. So if we're sitting down with them and saying, okay, here's how we can map out this journey. And here's what the next 20 years of that journey are going to look like. Now, by the way, this unfortunately is a for-profit organization and we need to, we need to pay our staff. We need to have top, top class tech. We need to occasionally take trips down to, to Cape Town to, to talk to our, uh, our colleagues in South Africa and share and expand our ideas. So we do need to have a, a war chest available. But if we have to do some of this work, we're very happy with you to share in terms of how we should be paid to do it. And we're not, we're not led by any way. So for example, a client might say, well, like, look, I, I just have a fundamental belief that I, I need to, I'm happy with you to get a, a commission and I'm okay with that because it's not costing me any money. And what we need to do in a transparent way is deliver and say, well, if we're going to be paid a commission, ultimately that money doesn't invent itself out of fresh air. So you will pay for that. And over 20 years, here's the compounding effect of that increase in your costs. Now, if we revert back and you take a little bit of pain up front by way of an upfront fee, here's how we smooth that journey out over the long run. And what we found with clients is the amazing thing with this, Louis, was clients became so much more engaged because they've skin in the game. And I always rationalize this. I always come back to sport, particularly when I'm talking to clients. If I'm given free tickets to Ireland versus South Africa playing in Nansen Road here in Dublin, do I value those tickets as much if I pay 200 euros for them? And if it's lashing rain, it's freezing cold, do I decide, well, maybe I might not go to the match or maybe I will. Now, if I've paid the 200 euros or the 4,000 rand, I'm definitely going to show up. So what we actually found is dynamic shifts with our clients when we had that conversation is all of a sudden they became part of the collaborative effort. And we had one or two remarkable instances, one quite recently. A very, uh, one of our top clients, and when I say top clients, like they've, they've considerable assets invested with us, but one of the people we've such a really, really good relationship with, and he said, look, on one of the calls we were on, he said, I have a, I have a bit of a problem with the fees. And our, as you'd know, from the financial planning standpoint, that's for us is all the barriers are coming up and we're worried, okay, where's this going to go? What do we need to prep? Do we need to pull up the file? And he said, I'm worried they're too low. I thought, wow, that's remarkable. Like we had to sit down and analyze that and say, you know, well, I said to him, you know, we're, we're actually very comfortable with where those fees are and we genuinely appreciate you raising it as a point. And I think it's, it, it spoke volumes to the caliber of, of our relationship that we could discuss that. But I said, we as a firm are very comfortable where they are. We don't feel they necessarily need to be moved. If we implement something by way of an addition to the team or software resources or something, we may need to discuss them. But for now, we're absolutely fine. Now, that. That's that's a dynamic shift in terms of a conversation with a client that when I started out, I didn't think things like that would ever occur. So it's amazing to see the transition and the the evolution of this. But now we're fully in partnership. So I am like, we're on the same team here now. So we're in the same 15. He's not on the opposition side. And we're like, Jesus, please don't ever ask us about fees or hide them in the background. We're all now totally up and running, which means he is now... I would describe, when I say he's part of the team, he now is an advocate for HFS. He's going to be out in a golf club. He's going to be out at a rugby match or he'll be out with a friend or colleagues or whoever it happens to be. And somebody will inevitably raise that point, particularly at the life stage that these people are at is money, pensions, investments. Now, he has become, my understanding is, an advocate of the firm by way of saying, if somebody external to him has a problem, where is he likely going to redirect them back to? To say, I have the people who you need to talk to. 
where we've gotten some people have dropped in, like the, the individual I had in the office just before we came on the call was told, I had a problem. I spoke to a trusted source. The first thing he said is, talk to HFS and don't talk to anybody else until you've gotten in and spoken to them. And I just think that's a really, it's a lovely place to be, like, because all of a sudden now we've shifted, a, we've shifted that conversation away. And clients, as I said, A, they've got skin in the game. B, they've a seat at the table in respect of how that should look and feel. And the third thing is they have total transparency as well. So we are not, we, that coming back to your piece earlier on, the conflict of interest, we're not placing a product if necessarily, if it has to be placed with some play, with one firm on the basis that we're being remunerated at the highest level. In fact, in a lot of cases, we're coming back to, to clients saying, you don't need to do any transactions here. You're absolutely fine. Now, we still get paid for the advice, irrespective of whether something is transacted or not. So I, 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 think, I think that's a really wonderful space. I think the key is really is how do we, how do we get that message out there in a broader sense with consumers? How do we, how do we verbalize that in a wider sense to say, hey, this is available. And if you're dealing with another entity, here are the questions you need to be asking of that advisor or that financial planner to ensure you're getting total transparency from that side as well. Yeah, Mark, it also takes away that stress of wondering, you know, when is the client going to figure out, when are they going to be able to use the calculator and add up all the fees, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, spoiler alert, they, they can add up. And, you know, most clients, I think, have a sense of what they're paying. And if the advisor brings up the conversation, you disarm it. And yeah. well done for actually engaging with that client because that was a great opportunity to potentially increase your fees where you said, well, we have thought about this. And I think just that piece where we can go to clients and say, there's some thought behind this. It's not just a random percentage that's determined by the product provider. It's aligned with the value we deliver. And I want to talk a little bit about that because that's something you focus on a lot, like increasing the value that you're delivering in your business. When do you get to a point where the value that you add is so much that it detracts from your team and your profitability and the way you live your life as a business owner. Yeah, I think that's that that's an interesting one, and it's it's. I think that becomes very difficult, and it, and it has. I don't think there is an out of box solution for that. I think that has to be implemented individually and also at a team level within the firm. And it's something even as I said, ch- chatting to the team um, over barbecue actually last night, we were talking about these concepts. Well, what does enough look like? And what does the right number, where's the right number? And it's amazing, even listening to, to your own podcast, we hear a lot of other advisors talking about this concept of, you know, profitability levels and where do we need to be? And I hope this doesn't sound like arrogant, but I feel like with our age profile and our level of qualifications and the expanding wealth and what we see in Ireland is the transition of wealth from one generation to the next, because we're only one generation removed in this country from what I describe as abject poverty. Now, we now have a generation of my parents' age who are, in a lot of cases, incredibly wealthy, and we're going to see a passing of that wealth onto the next generation. So for us as a firm, we're kind of looking at this and saying, irrespective of what we do, clients are going to come to us because we're at the younger scale of it, we're the right qualifications, we're talking the right language. So can we sideline this concept of saying, well, what levels of profitability are we going to try and get to, or what number of clients do we want to get to? Some of the numbers that I think are more resounding for us around that piece is, well, can we ensure that no member of the team is going home and saying, well, due to some client concern or something that's happened in the background, that I didn't sleep this week, or as a result, I didn't get a chance to go down to my children's football match or rugby match or whatever it is as a result of what was going on at work because I was driven demented. And our, 
I think one of the big things, and we try and talk to the clients about this, because as I said, they are stakeholders in this as well. They're shareholders in this operation. So like they fundamentally need us to be as as, as on the pitch and as, as, as tuned in and as, as ready to go. And like kind of, they need a degree of vibrancy from us when we get up that we're constantly, you know, in good form and excited about what we do. And we tried to explain to them about this model is that like at a certain point, we reach, we reach a critical mass in terms of um, overexpanding ourselves in terms of, well, how many people do we work with? And then we move, we slide back into that reactionary mode and we get clients, well, I haven't heard from you. And I said, I'm really sorry. We just haven't had the time. And that's causing its own stresses and strains. And I think the difficulty, the difficulty, I think, in a way with doing that is, is trying to implement in such a fashion where everybody can say, well, I'm happy. I get up I, on a Sunday evening. I don't dread a Monday morning. And we were chatting about that last night. And it, it's funny talking to one of our new members of the team here, Owen. He was saying, I genuinely love coming in because he said, look, we have difficult days like any other firm. But he said, it's genuinely exciting and I can feel we're adding good. And I said, well, the the biggest feedback I can get as CEO is if you ever lose that or if you feel that's about to wane, you need to feed that back to me or you need to feed it back to the team. You know, and if that's us sliding around the corner for a cup of coffee and a chat external to the office, that's really, really important. We need to sense check these things as much as we can. And what we've started to implement recently is, is um, I, I heard Taylor Shield talking about this in a, uh, from the States this morning on, on a call was a lot of time should be spent just going out and engaging with other advisors. Um, not dissimilar to, 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 to you and I having this conversation or um, a very valuable conversation myself and the team are going to have with De- David Garriock and his team and Brandon next week, which is amazing. And I think we should be sense checking with, with one another. And it's not even so much around the fact, well, what new piece of shiny software are you using? But are you guys in a good space? Are we all in a good space with what we're doing? Because I think um, if, you, if, you, if you look back even at the Lead Symposium conference and, and the... Um, Excuse me, it was a Dr. Tulsa who spoke. Um, Tuli Madoncella. Tuli Madoncella, a, a little me, bit yeah. of a tricky surname, Exa- but exactly, yeah. I mean, she she hit the nail on the head. Is this profession is so so vital to the well being of an economy, and so so vital for the well being of the consumers within that economy. So we can we have the power to do great good, and obviously we have the power to do great evil as well. Or, not, or evil maybe is too strong a word, but great damage is probably more appropriate. But we have to be very mindful of ourselves in terms of as as individuals. Are we are we growing relative to our clients in terms of their own wealth? And I don't mean that purely from a monetary standpoint. But are we also enjoying ourselves? Because what we try and take a lead on this thing is feeding back to our clients. Do do as I do, not as I say. And I think the real benefit of that is before even we took off to the conference in South Africa last month, we spoke to a number of clients and advised them what we were doing. So we said, look, we're going down here, and here's the rationale. And there's a little bit of a wow factor for clients. And we're very fortunate we get to travel a lot to, to talk to full managers or to go to the likes of the conference. But really what we're also saying to them as well is, look, you know, the business element of it is really important, but so are the relationships and the likes of the conversation that, that you and I had to got to have and with, with various branding and with, with um, very Craig Tor and some super people down in South Africa. And these are relationships we can hopefully hope to expand upon. So we're trying to explain that back to our clients. It's like, look, we feel by us, you know, minding our own mental health and ensuring we also take time off. And we, we came up with one of the ideas we're going to do was we have the August bank holiday coming up and we made the decision, look, the office is going to be closed and it'll be closed for that whole week. And that's something we would never really done before. And even I'm, I'm a stickler for this. I was on a week's, I was meant to be on a week's holidays last week, but I still worked every day. And if we don't step away at some point and take some time for ourselves, we're not going to be of any use to our clients in the long run. I, I, again, coming back to sports, there's no point in the spring box going out and playing 
all year round without getting a break to get back hungry for the World Cup. You know, so we do need to sometimes step away from this thing. And I think as a profession, we're not good at doing that. And that's one of the things we try and drive in the office here is I think the best ideas we tend to have around the business is, a, is, is are those that come when we're as far removed from the business as possible. I.e. when I'm in the west of Ireland, I'm swimming on some obscure beach and something, all of a sudden that my mind clicks and I go, I've solved that problem. I'm sure you guys have it, you going down to Kruger or somewhere and you're, you're out, in the, out in the bush and you're saying, now I've got it, it's clicked. Yeah, no one ever has a groundbreaking idea in the office. <laughs> These things exactly. happen when you allow it to percolate. I really loved what you said there about almost this idea of the canary in the coal mine, this leading indicator. If your passion starts waning or if you're picking that up, you have to feed that back to the team, which is the part I liked. And yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the role of a financial planner, but also someone that is managing a team. How have you found that almost let's call it accidental CEO role of having to manage people and motivate people as staff members, some of them also being family members. Yeah. What have you done to improve those skills personally? Is there, is it just time that you've accumulated this? Is it reflecting on decisions? Is it conversations? What has helped you do that? Because a lot of advisors as their businesses grow, find themselves, you know, being the owner and and looking after other employees, yet very few are actually trained to manage yeah. people, motivate people. And and I think it's a tough task. It, it's really difficult. And it's, it's funny, as, as as my dad was standing down, um, he was really adamant about this concept of going off and doing a specific uh, degree or a diploma purely around professional management. And through the jigs and the reels and how things tend to go is that it, that was a great concept, but timelines just weren't readily made available because we're constantly chasing our tail. And, you know, one of the big things, and it's it's not that we don't, like, it's not that we don't have issues here either, but I, I think what we had to get across to everybody is, you know, we needed to have, you know, total honesty in respect of all the conversations that we're having. And one of the difficulties was uh, communication of messaging from my side, which is absolutely clear and transparent in my mind, may not be the right message to be assimilated by some of the members of the team. And and the difficulty is is I I had to take a stand back and realize that not everybody's going to think like I do and operate the same way I do. And particularly those with, with, with family members, the expectation is that they should look like, you know, Mini Mark or Mark Light. And that's that's not going to happen. And I'll be honest, that would be a bad thing because we as a firm have to be very careful in the sense that we can't all have groupthink on this thing. It ha- it's it's really positive that we have um, different viewpoints. We challenge one another around these things. And, and, and as I said, we, we, we try to have an open door policy. And we were only again chatting over this last night saying, we want to put everybody in a position within the firm where they feel comfortable challenging others relative to what the style of advice is. So what I want to do is if we're providing advice to a client, that each member of the team is almost just at least two sets of additional sets of eyes on this. And it's not that they all come in to backpat and say, that's great stuff. They're there to pull it apart. You know, and again, back to the sporting analogy, like at the end, it's like watching the video analysis of a match. Where did we go wrong as opposed to where did we go right? And can we improve upon those things in future? And I suppose I never, I, I love the concept of, and uh, and sitting in front of clients and working with them directly. And I think nine times out of 10, most business owners that you talk to who are kind of wearing the two hats will say, you know, I fall down and I fall down heavily when it comes to trying to manage the practice and manage the firm, you know, and and one of the areas that we, what we're trying to implement now at the moment, and, and by way of even taking that week in, in, in August now, is to say, 
we need to spend as much, nearly as much time outside of the business thinking about it as we do inside it and working away. And that's one of the real, that's one of the crunch elements that I'm trying to do. And and we do that in a, we do that in a comfortable setting and, and we do that out ser- external to the office, We whether it's going down and, and we go for, we all go for a swim in the sea or something in the local sea and we go for a pint after. And as you said, that's where we have an open and, f- and free chat. And and our ra- my rationale is we, we wanted to build a team whereby we, albeit I know, look at, you know, a considerable number of our, fa- our family members and that comes with its own difficulty in the sense because I didn't want to get to a stage where anybody within the practice says, I don't want to spend social time with one another as a result of the fact that they have me driven completely mad in the office. And it's something we have to, we have to be really careful of. It's obviously a strength for the firm to have so many people from the same family involved. But at the same time, it poses a massive threat there for our long-term well-being and, and, and happiness and, and also relationship as a family. And as most people will see, when families fall out, it tends to be over it. silly things like businesses or money or kind of, which in, in the long run are bits that are totally, totally trivial. And when most people are on their deathbed, will say, well, that was absolutely a mistake. So we're I'm really conscious of just ensuring that I suppose in a way, it's not to say that like it's a title without, it's a title of CEO and that it has no, no weighting to it. But, you know, I, I, I think it was really important that we all felt that we had skin in the game here and that everybody's opinion was as valuable as everybody else's. And, and one of the big things for me is I, I at times nearly need to sit back and shut up and listen and, and act and do proper active listening because, it, you know, I did say from the outset when I took over, look, there can only be one hand on the tiller. But it needs a full crew to man the ship and we all serve a role here and we all have to have a voice on this thing. So I, I think it's a constant learn, Louis. I don't, I don't think it can be ever really perfected because I, I think the business is going to ebb and flow and there's going to be changes in circumstances and compliance circumstances in the background that, that are completely out of our control. But I think if from a personal standpoint and from a, a, again, I come back to that point, if we have empathy for one another, I don't think you can go too far wrong. And I, and I hope. I say, I obviously I'm biased. I'm saying that because I'm running the ship now. But I would hope that the rest of the team would reiterate that sentiment. And as I said, we try and do those soft touches from time to time, just feeding in, saying, "Look, are, are we all okay here? Are we in a good space? Are we? Are is our relationship as good as possible? Because ultimately, the better we all are together, again, it leads back to the same outcome. It's a much better outcome for the client. It's almost like your team members are your most valuable customers, and that you're looking after them first. And then they can service those clients. I want to know what what are you saying to your kids? Are they of an age where they can start thinking about, hey, do I join the family business? Do I want to go and work for and with dad ultimately? Or is uh, how old are your kids? Are that too far off? Uh, well, my eldest boy Shay is six, and my youngest Rory is three. Um, so they're kind of more interested in playing. They're they're playing their Gaelic football, and they're hurling their Irish sports and their soccer and stuff here, and that's kind of more. It's how many ice creams a week can they eat rather than about thinking about the business. And I always reflect on that analogy, you know, the first generation starts the business, the second generation builds it up and the third generation squanders the wealth. Um, I, I would love like, a, and I don't think I'm wrong in saying this, and I think most of us, like particularly those of us who are sort of sharing, sharing these ideas are thinking, what a wonderful, wonderful business uh, for someone to get involved in. Then the 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 ability to do good and the touch points and the relationships you build with clients are absolutely you know fundamental, and 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 of so much value. And I think also like if you think about this concept of financial planning as a profession, we are 
when we are like at the industrial age in terms of the steam engine, we are right at the coalface of this just getting started. So I would love the concept of the boys at some point in the future being feeling comfortable and being in a position to say, we can come in and carry this on into the future. And, and that it's, 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 it's palatable for them to do that and, and have their own families and be comfortable. But again, I think we also, I, I, th- I think we have to be somewhat careful as well. And, and I remember speaking to my parents about this is like, obviously the name is over the, the door and it's a family practice, but we, we sometimes have to remove the emotion from the business as well. And we have to be conscious that dreams we, we have may not be shared by the next generation, they might decide to go and do something different. Like, I mean, I, I never had any aspirations to come into this, into the business. My aspiration was to to go to college, to, to get a business degree, um, so I had a fallback to do languages. So I studied French and Spanish, and ultimately to do to do a cadetship or go in into the army as an officer. And it just so happened that that kind of journey took a slightly different path. And in a way, thank God that it did. But I I, I think the benefits of of my parents allowing me the flexibility and freedom to go out and try these things. And I actually think I wouldn't have a problem with them potentially going out into the world and discovering themselves and trying loads of different things and then coming back. Because again, we have to be very careful in the sense that groupthink does tend to slide in. And it's really important that, you know, people that do join the firm or whether that's, the, if, if, if my own two sons were to come in, that they've gone and tried loads of different things and they figure it out, the good bits from those professions and the bad bits. And the hope is they can then come in and assimilate here, but bring all the value they've picked up from those other gigs to be able to kick this thing on. But I, I mean, they're, they're so young and I, 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 I don't know if, if you're in a similar position. I'm not sure if you've, if you've children, but I don't know whether or not that's a, an idea you've thought about yourself. Or So my daughter is now two and a half. Uh, I must say it hasn't it it has crossed my mind, but I haven't spent a lot of time mm. thinking about it. But like you, I agree with that idea of going broad, building experiences, building some skills. You know, if she happens to be involved in the business, great. But uh, my my dad also started his own business. And now I think it would be wonderful to have the privilege to spend time working with your family. But at the same time, you also craft your own fingerprints and your own impression on the world, uh, which gives you an, a new ability. What are those skills that you think they would have to work on? If you fast forward kind of nine years from now and they have to start thinking about, you know, tertiary education mm. and like, and I know we're trying to have a sense of what the world would look like now, but what are, what do you think are the kind of skills that a financial planner 10 years from now would need to work on today to still remain relevant yes. in an age where things are changing so quickly? It's a great question. And I mean, like we're, we're, we're looking at, at change moving at such a rapid pace at the moment. And, and it sometimes can be stressful feeling, God, are we getting left behind here? You know, and I think the fundamentals of, of being a good financial planner will always be the same thing. And I mean, and the key, the key point is somebody walks in the door, the door here today and we're having a chat beforehand is we're saying, look, if we can inst- in, implement a strategy where we've total trust with one another, we can build a relationship. And the third thing is this genuine likability, i.e. when you come to see me, will you look forward to seeing me in years time or does this be act as a drag? If we can develop those skill sets, and a lot of those are just dictated by things like active listening, like are we listening correctly? Are we analyzing what the individual is saying? And we are, are we actually enable, as Brendan Fraser would say in America, are we posing the right questions? Do we have those three to five absolute nuggets of the right questions to ask? 
to disarm that person and say, this guy isn't trying to sell me a product. He's actively, he's genuinely interested and he's trying to help me. I think if we can implement those, which will never, I don't think will fundamentally ever change because my, I remember my dad had a great expression about this when they, when somebody spoke about robo-advice and, you know, the, the, the evolution of the internet and how people would take out plans online. As he said, the, the internet never rang anybody. The internet never picked up the phone when somebody passed away or somebody was a week from retirement to ring them to ask them, are they okay and do they need help? And that human connection, I think, is the key bit. I think if we can spend all of our time, or primarily, it's really important that we become CFPs and we, we do our various exams. But I think we need to spend a lot more time looking at the behavioral economics and psychology side, soft skill psychology bits. I, I got a book recently called How to Die Well. I mean, how morbid does that sound? And as I said, it's really about trying, as we spoke about earlier on, trying to understand and, and have empathy for those who've suffered major, major losses and how, how we can assist them. I I couldn't get it. I couldn't get that. I got too upset reading it, if I'm being honest with you. I haven't managed to break the back on it. But I, I think really crafting and honing our, our ability to nudge people in the right direction. I, I, sorry, not nudge them in the right direction. Nudge them away from the wrong direction. And I use this analogy as our job is not to make right decisions with clients. Our job is to prevent them from making three life-altering mistakes over the course of their financial life. And that's it. And I think... Leaning in on, on on technology, the way we can do with things like AI going forward should make this much more seamless because I heard another great expression is if you're in a role as a CFP, if you're doing any admin for that client, you're effectively robbing them. So 90, we, we have the 80-20 rule, 80% do an admin, 20% in front of the client. I think it needs to go to 90-10. 90% of our time should be in front of the client, talking to them. And a lot of that time doesn't necessarily be driven by reviewing portfolio reports or talking about the estate plan or reviewing the risk or the investment strategies. It's just talking as humans, as, in, as in individuals, and growing that army of information that we have around those people. I heard a really interesting one from a client before, and I picked up on it again from Brendan Fraser. And the client uh, was in the office with me, and we were just chatting, and he said, you know, I, I really want to retire early. And I just asked him, well, is there is there something that happened to you or what's driving or dictating that and he said, well, look, my, my dad passed away in his early 50s and I don't want to put myself in this position where I've worked and worked and effectively, you know, nearly killed myself through the work and not be able to spend time with my family. And that's a kind of a light bulb moment for us as financial planners because we can now craft the whole plan around that. And you could argue, you know, okay, once it's noted from a compliance standpoint, we'll hopefully satisfy the various regulators here as to how we got to that. But it's sometimes very hard because it's almost like an intangible asset in a way. We reflect back that any decision made in the future should be driven and dictated by that sort of rationale. So I think for, for adv advisors of the future and planners of the future, technology is obviously going to be probably the number one thing. But the second one that I don't think will ever change is having those soft skills and being in a position, whether by way of, you know, the psychological element and the behavioral economics. Uh, like that's that's what I feel my next transition having gotten all the qualifications the exams is I need to absorb more, more stuff from Daniel Crosby I need to pull in um, Morgan Housel's great book The Psychology of Money I've probably read that now for the fifth time and it's still a even though I'm in the business 10, 11, 12 years we still have a rational um, elements of ourselves as human beings and it's really important that we go back and read and just the simple elements that come through here you say my god it seems so simple but in practice it's principle, it's easy, but in practice, it doesn't work. And I think that's why we will always, there will always be a need for financial planners. In fact, I think our need is growing 
and will continue to grow into the future. And it makes our role and our profession so, so important into the future to help steer people away, as I said, not from the right decisions, but steer them away from the wrong decisions. Mark, what a wonderful way to end. Thank you for your energy and your passion for this profession and that continuous involvement. I wish you all the best for Hedeman Financial Solutions and your growing family and your growing team. Thank you for being a great guest today. Thank you so much, Lou. It's an absolute pleasure and continued success to you uh, in respect of the podcast. It's added huge value to me listening in and I continue to do so. 